everyone. This is Tracy Siska from the Chicago Justice Project. Welcome to our Chicago Justice Show. We're really excited today to have Eddie Bocanegra, Senior Director at Ready Chicago, a project of the Heartland Alliance. Vaughn Bryant, Executive Director of Community Partners for Peace, or CP4P, which is how we're going to be responding to it, uh, or talking about it. And Peter uh, Cunningham, uh, Communications Consultant for Chicago Cred. Um, so we'll get to them in just one minute. I just want to give you all a little bit about CJP. Every Wednesday night at 7 p.m. Central, we have our gathering, our weekly strategy session for what we are calling CJP Nation, which is an advocacy wing of our organization. Um, but also it brings together volunteers from all over the country, interns, and they work on group uh, crowdsource research projects. Uh, some of them are social media ambassadors for the program. So if you're looking to get involved in transparency work, not just in Chicago, but around the country, because we're expanding, that's a great uh, place to do it. There's the link. Um, and also this show, which is usually Wednesdays, 12 to 1 Central, is expanding on March 1st. We're going to go three days a week, streaming in the evenings, at f starting at 530 Central, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Okay. Um, gentlemen, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Nice to be here. Thank you for having us. Okay, so I'm going to do a little, let's do a little introduction about what each of your organizations do, and then we'll get into the heart of some of the questions. So, uh, Vaughn, Communities Partnering for Peace, or CP4P, at least on your website, says... Uh, is a framework that provides a comprehensive long-term approach to reducing violence and gang activity among individuals and communities it serves. Can you give us a high-level view of what CP4D does a little more than that? Yeah, so CP4P is actually uh, a collaborative of uh, 16 organizations that uh, Metropolitan uh, Peace Initiatives, we convene that group. And each group does a combination of street outreach work, case management work. We have a place-based strategy called Light in the Night, where we have events in those communities three nights a week uh, during the summer and once a month, fall, winter, spring. And then we host what we call a Metropolitan Peace Academy, where we train all of the outreach workers across the network and beyond uh, on how to do street outreach work, providing professional standards to the work and uh, really making it a, a, a you know, a, a, a job that you can do that, you know, can potentially launch you into other jobs. Awesome. Okay. So Eddie, let's talk a little bit about Ready. On your website, you guys talk about, we are driven to decrease shootings and homicides among those highest risk for gun violence, creating new opportunities for the same individuals to change their trajectory. How do you do that? Well, ironically, um, launched in 2017, Ready Chicago uh, is pretty much an innovative approach to respond to gun violence in our city of Chicago. Uh, it connects people who are at the highest risk of gun involvement or victimization to uh, kind of behavior therapy, uh, paid professional jobs, as well as additional support social services, uh, particularly in specific communities in our city through uh, six various partners that are embedded in these communities, both in the south side and the west side of Chicago. Okay, wonderful. So, Peter, let's turn to you in Chicago cred. Uh, among other things, I know this is more of an, I'm going to say, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, this is more about an economics, economic changes. Let me know if that's right, but I know Arnie Duncan is your is the executive director, the leader of the organization. I know all these organizations work together. So can you give me a little bit about what uh, Chicago Cred does? Sure. Uh, it was founded in 2016 by Arnie, who's the former um, 
secretary of education and he was the CEO of the Chicago Public Schools, lifelong Southside resident uh, who grew up with a lot of kids who were at risk and um, always cared deeply about them. Um, so uh, what we do is uh, similar to what both of the other organizations do. We're all in some different neighborhoods. Uh, we focused a lot on the far south side in Roseland. You know, we intervene with the guys who are most at risk. We try and get them to put down their guns, give them therapy. We give them support. We give them a paycheck, which is important because, uh, you know, most of them are just trying to survive and they have to eat. Some of them have to pay rent. They got to take care of their families. And so we give them a paycheck. We try and train them to give them jobs. We give them therapy. We give them support. We give them life coaches. Uh, we give them whatever it takes to put down their guns and stop shooting. Um, uh, and uh, over the years, we've, we, we've adapted the model. We originally thought that getting these guys jobs is, is the end zone. Um, but it sometimes takes more than that. Sometimes you have to really stay with them for several years. Uh, so we're just adapting and learning about how to how to do this. Um, uh, it's a constant constant uh, you know state of self reflection to make sure we're watching our guys, keeping an eye on them. But we're very proud that um, the research applying to all three organizations suggests that we're making a positive difference. Okay, so let's get if I'm going to put you a little bit on the spot here. What are the top three most pressing social problems? that the communities and individuals your organizations deal with are facing, if you had to rank them? And anyone can jump in. Uh, let me give, I'll give you one. Um, okay. I think that the, you know, the, the years of systemic oppression uh, is probably the biggest contextual thing uh, in my mind, because if we're just talking and we want to make it the most recent. If you look at the history of redlining in our city and the inability for, you know, mostly black, but also brown people to not be able to benefit from one of the largest wealth generating uh, mechanisms in the world, in the country, at least and for uh, the United States, that has a generational effect in terms of accumulating wealth uh, and then sustaining neighborhoods, attracting businesses, uh, you know, driving out poverty. It has an impact on education attainment. So I think that's the biggest thing I would say in terms of getting to the root. As a matter of fact, I, I want to just contextualize something of what Vaughn has mentioned, right? You know, through Ready, we, we have a very small sample of individuals that we've been serving. So we've served uh, roughly about 1,200 men uh, through engagement of street outreach, but close to 700 of them, 680 or so men, um, have taken advantage of the job and the CBT, some additional services along the way. But just to kind of give you a snapshot into what Vaughn is also pointing out here. So through police data, hospital data, we know that on average, our men in our program have 17 to 18 arrests. We know that 60% of them have done prison time. We know that over 80% of them have been victims of violence, either they've been stabbed, shot, or assaulted. As a matter of fact, you know, we, we talk about violence prevention, but ultimately, a lot of the men that we all work with here have been victims of violence, generally speaking. In British Chicago, we have had about 240 men out of the close to 680 men that I mentioned. Uh, they've been victims of, of, of shootings. 
they're survivors of gun violence. So that's one third of the people that we serve. So again, building on what Vaughn just mentioned, I think about, you know, one of the challenges for us is understanding that the oppression, the, sy- the systemic challenges that we face today have been inherited, right, for many generations. And what we're seeing right now is a byproduct, right, of disinvestment, of lack of opportunity and access. So for your average listener who might say, well, you know, so much money is going into violence prevention efforts, that is true, but there's way much more money going into punitive approaches as opposed to caring for people and fully grasping the fact that you are dealing with families who've been impacted by violence, you are dealing with families who have been separated because of the criminal justice system. To take, for example, the war on drugs. And there's other examples that I could give around that, right? But ultimately, you know, our communities that we're working in right now, there's lack of opportunity of employment. There's actually lack of opportunities for upward mobility. Uh, we're seeing more and more residents in these communities leaving our city, which to me means also less taxpayers dollars going into the system to support these kind of services as well. So again, there's a lot that could be deconstructed here, but I think that for, for your average audience, they have to understand that it's not just about, you know, uh, telling somebody to put their gun down or providing a program for them, right? I heard Vaughn said this before, we're not going to be able to program our way out of the situation. There has to be implications around policy changes, removing stigmas and barriers, and really meeting the people they're at and building from that point on. Yeah, one of the ways we often talk about this is that uh, we see it as a public health problem, not a crime problem. And as long as we see it only as a crime problem, we're going to continue to approach it the same way, which is to try and arrest our way out of the problem. And that hasn't worked, and it's not going to work. But what does work is when you start to look at all those root causes, as Vaughn mentioned, the structural racism that has denied wealth-building opportunities in the African-American community. Uh, it's, de- it's denied entrepreneurship a- a- opportunities. It's uh, resulted in less housing opportunities. It results in worse public health outcomes, actual health outcomes. It, there's so many implications of it. And when you really embrace all of those dimensions of an unhealthy community, you begin to understand why gun violence emerges as an outcome. And that's that's kind of the way more more and more we're thinking about this. It's a public health issue. Let, let me add a, a, another point to this: Please. is that you will often hear people say, "Well, well, this person made it. How come everyone oh, yeah. can?" <laughs> um, and I think we have to be careful about that mindset. If we have a community where ten percent of the people make it, but then we have another community where ninety percent of the people make it then there's a structural challenge there. And we shouldn't be asking why the 10% made it as much as what is going on that only 10% made it. Because as a government, as a society, we should be creating conditions for every person to be on a path to a dignified life, right? And if they're not, then we need to, you know, look at ourselves, look at our, our structure. And I think you can't not acknowledge, you know, sort of our political climate today and the polarization um, politicians being more about themselves and their own reelection versus really being truly public servants and doing what's best for the people they serve. All of those things play a role in, in the society that we have today. And this gun violence is only a symptom of byproduct of larger issues. And, and, you know, we're still not really fully addressing 
the true root causes just yet. We're, we're, I think all of us, what we're doing is trying to create uh, a, a place where people can go who want to go uh, to a different path so that if you, the healing that is necessary, it's going to take a long, long time given how long it took us to get to this point because people are, the, the level of trauma it is staggering. It is staggering. And, I, and we do this every day and I'm still like, wow, like it's going to take us, you know, decades to get out of this uh, situation we're in. Yeah, to your point, I, that has always annoyed the crap out of me because if you look at white communities, uh, white middle class communities specifically or higher, that one person, like the 10% you're talking about in, in these communities, that 10% in the white media, you know, middle class and above, that ends up becoming the CEO of some corporation, right? And then the other like 75, 80%, they quote unquote make it because they live reasonably comfortable lives and they live in safer communities, right? And they've got reasonable access to healthcare and education, um, mortgages, reasonable mortgages, not the ones where they steal you blind, all of that stuff. So that 10% thing, why can't that person, this is always, you don't understand because they've only made it, they've made it, uh, if you compare them to, uh, if you try to compare it to how people, other people in their community are at, the level they've made it to. They've made it there, but they haven't made it to the fulfill what is most likely would have been their destiny if they had equal opportunity, given their talents and whatever else drive they have that's within them. So they've only made it to a level, and that level is where the society's, um, uh, <laughs> the white middle class society is happy to let them go to. You can get there. That's fine. We'll take one out of a hundred or a thousand of you. That's fine. But the rest have to stay down there. We're not help. You know, they just have to work harder like you. That has always um, bothered me to no end, um, that question. So I'm going to, we've, we've, you guys talked about it a little bit and I'm going to um, talk about it now. And I want you guys to comment. I, I am a huge fan of what you, what your organizations do, but I have been criticized in the past. I, I think. There's only so much, as Eddie said, there's only so much programs. You're, there's only so much success that is possible from your programs. Even if they were to hit at 100% every day, every day, all the time, there's only so much that you're going to change, you're going to be possible to create. Um, I would think real change as far as like economic opportunities would, the idea would be to run your organizations out of business. Yes. Right. That's what we. That's what we need. We need a city that has policies and a state and a country that has policies in lifting up these communities and building them, so that we don't need your organizations to do what they're doing. Am, am I? Am I wrong? Am I? Where do you feel? I fall on that. I think anytime you do uh, a social service or any kind of clinical work or any, and you're in your helping field, you empower people to live an autonomous life. So absolutely, that's true. Um, and I, you know, th I mean, it, the unfortunate truth is sometimes people, you know, like that problems exist because they think that's what gets them a job when the reality is there'll be something else for you to do. Um, and you have to trust that, that doing the right thing for the right thing's sake uh, is going to, you know, empower people and that our lives can be good without, you know, as many helpers as we need now. But we're not close to that right now. Like we don't have enough people to help the people that we do that do need help at the level that they need it. Um, so yes, but we we're still climbing uphill right now in terms of 
you know, if you think about uh, psychologists or licensed clinical social workers, school counselors, te- teachers, the need we we don't you know the need is is so great that we don't we can't keep up with that need right now. Sorry. The other thing that I would mention uh, as well is that h- how do we prioritize right our needs? Uh, I think the best example that that I could share, and we're living through it right now, is is COVID. I think what COVID uh, disclosed to us as a nation that the public sector and and the social service sector wasn't really ready to embrace the challenges that came with COVID in terms of preparing, supporting families or individuals, um, thinking about the criminal justice of the prison system, for example, a, a vulnerable population, whether people would agree to that or not. Um, they're, they are, you know, they're wards of the state and they had difficult times in really, um, you know, supporting and caring for them. And what that reveals to me is how, as, as a nation, we have prioritized punitive approaches, punishment, versus rehabilitation or versus support, supporting individuals who are struggling through whatever situation they're going through. Particularly as we learn more and more about this issue around race and equity as an example. Uh, you know, the other, the other part that I would say is that we often make excuses about whose lives are worth more than others. And I, again, sticking to the COVID example, I'm extremely proud in which our governor here in the state of Illinois, Governor Prisker, um, was able to mobilize his entire team, the entire state, where they were able to reduce the exposure of COVID, uh, you know, think about process and, and hospitals, right, to receive individuals who, who um, were diagnosed with COVID. So as a nation, we, as, a, as a state, we came together, the county, local officials, and so on. And I can't help but to think to myself, wow, we were very quick to mobilize around this specific issue. And it probably has to do that the vaccine, that the uh, that COVID-19 didn't discriminate based on race, class, or gender, even though we know today that in, in poor communities of color, they tend to be the highest exposed and, and, and individuals who are, are, are more easy to be receptive to the virus. But I, I have to wonder, why is it that as a state or as a government, we don't prioritize gun violence? You know, we had 769 people killed last year. And I, I, I scratch my head and say, how many more homicides do we have to have so that we could give the same level of attention and urgency that we do to COVID or any other infectious diseases? Um, and and the, the sad part is like, what lives are valued more than others? And that goes back to the earlier comments that Bob mentioned, you know, it's about this issue on systemic racism as well. Um, in some cases, very you know um, outspoken and very visual. In other cases, it's not. Um, so that that's also a, a big challenge for for what we're grappling right now. And for your listeners again, for the, those who have more conservative points of view, uh, that you know, they're funding programs. We're paying taxes to these programs. But the truth is, as Vaughn mentioned again, it's a very we're serving a very small population in comparison to what the need really exists. Okay, I have a question for all of you. Can either jump in? I know your programs haven't been around a long time, but are you seeing a 
marked difference in the way the city's responding to these issues. Um, if you were around long enough for daily, then we transitioned to ROM and now we're into Lightfoot. Is there really, has there been a marked difference in how the city's responding to these things under those administrations? Well, I, mean, I can I tell mean, you, I worked for the. Go ahead, go ahead, Vaughn. Yeah, I would just say there's no question there's a difference in the sense that we now have an offense of violence reduction uh, under this new mayor. Uh, we have around an $11 million uh, um, budget now, where prior to um, 2020, there was um, you know maybe a million here and there. Uh, that they were that they invested, so they they definitely have stepped up in terms of their investment. And you know, as we said in the beginning, what they the, the initial investment was a down payment, and uh, that you know they need to do more. And uh, and I trust that they will do more. Uh, this is the first time the city, county, and the state have all sort of invested in violence prevention at the level that they're at. But again, you know, as Eddie said, it's it's not close to enough. Um, in terms of where we need to be to really fully address the issue. Um, so it has to be an, an, a larger investment and it has to be an, a sustained uh, investment for a long period of time. So we're just in the beginning stages. Yeah, I was going to say, I um, I worked for the Daily Administration and uh, back in the 90s when he announced community policing as a new approach to fighting crime. Mm -hmm. uh, but he was also an advocate of sort of the broken windows theory of policing, which holds that if you take care of small issues, um, it will discourage uh, worst kinds of crime. So, for example, he made a big effort to tow away abandoned cars and to remove abandoned buildings. Um, so that was a long time ago. And in some ways, it, it may have appeared like it worked because the 1990s were the worst period in the city's history, I believe. And then by the 2000s, it had started to come down. By 2010, we were down around 500, 500 uh, homicides a year. So by some measures, it appeared that things were uh, doing better. Um, then, you know, we got to 2016, which, where it shot way up again. Then it started going back down again. Then it went way up again last year. So I think some of these approaches, um, as Vaughn said, uh, we have a real Office of Violence Prevention, which we never really had before. We never really had a, a, a direct outreach program like the kinds that our organizations are all running uh, where that works directly with the young men most at risk. So that's really, really different. That's it. But, but community policing is sort of coming back and making a comeback. Uh, I don't think the broken windows theory is coming back in any big way. Let me just correct one thing. We did have a small outreach Smaller uh, outreach uh, initiative, um, I think Ceasefire and Cure Violence for a long time were doing this work, not at the scale that we're doing it today, but I think they, without them, I don't think that we could have ramped up as quickly as we did uh, when when the three of us got started, uh, because the work to kind of set the foundation is important to point out. Go ahead, Eddie. Yeah, no, I was going to say, so... Um so I have a slightly different perspective on 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 the question or the answers, right? Um, so on a positive note, I, I do sing praise for the city stepping up and creating an office of violence prevention. I know it's one of, of several dozens across the country, and it is great that our city created that space because it, it, it acknowledges that there's a need there, right? 
a need that has gone um, unaddressed. Um, you know, Vaughn mentioned $11 million, and he mentioned that it's it's a starting point, it's a down payment to the right? I've heard Arnie mentioned as well. And it's great. It's in good faith. Now, <clears throat> what I would say behind this, in terms of like what I've seen in other administrations um, and even what I currently see right now, I, I can't help but to wonder this, right? We invest so much in public safety through police department or through, through, through Chicago Police Office. And um, and I think we have a moment here in our history to just hit a pause and, and reevaluate. Are we getting our return of investment you know, by the way that we are funding current public safety initiatives? $11 million compared to I see what the police budget really is. It's, it's, to me, it's peanuts. And so here's, here's why I say this to you, too. Two, two, two examples that I'll illustrate. You know, there was a study recently that demonstrates that in Chicago, um, your average homicide, it costs taxpayers about $1.5 million. So in essence, right, if I think about our data ready, and, and we, when we think about the control group and the treatment group, you know, we we know that the program in the last two and a half years already has paid for itself. Uh, you know, by preventing 20 homicides or 30 shootings, uh, the approach itself funded. And, and so, so I, I think that's one way to look at this as well, right? Like, how are we investing our resources? What's working? What's not working? Um, the second example that I'll that I'll give briefly. I had a young man, uh, Mark Navarez. I've been mentoring him since he was about 15 years old. Um, about late late October, he was shot and killed by the police. Uh, recently, I saw the videos. Uh, there's apparently like he, you know, the family has a good case, right? Because he was shot in the back. I won't go into the details of that. But here's here's the reason why I lift that example up. When Mark Navarez came home from prison, uh, about a month later, he reached out to me and said, "Hey, um, how do I get into ready?" And my response to him was, well, you live one block south of North Lawndale, so I can't connect you. Um, and then his response is like, well, is this program only for black people? Keep in mind that the people that I serve and the communities that I serve, 97% of my participants are black or African-American. And so he joked around that. And I said, well, there's different ways that I could, I could support you. And we did through a church and a couple of different things that we did. I think about how, you know, if I would have been in a better position, I could have provided ready for him, but I was limited. I was limited and I was married to a randomized control trial study. And I was also limited on the slots that I have for the in our program. And yet, right, that at some point there will be a court settlement. It's probably going to be about a million dollars. And I think to myself, that's a million dollars that comes from taxpayers. A million dollars that could have gone to a program like Ready or CP4P or CRED. And so I, I have to rationalize there, like, how do we justify that? How is it that we're willing to pay over $200 million in police overtime and court settlements, but as a city, we have a hard time really investing in promising programs or strategies as well? So I'm, I'm a little bit of a skeptic in that case. Um, even though I'm going into this with the best hope I can, but I, I am somewhat skeptic. 
Let me let me uh, also correct the record. I, I agree with Eddie 100 percent, which is partly why we're talking about a down payment. And, but there's a lot of things that need to happen. Uh, the city actually has committed 36 million to violence prevention. Uh, it's 11 in the space that we're in. Um, but the Mar- Department of Family Support Services uh, recently uh, sort of realigned some of this money uh, to do some different things and and violence prevention that they haven't done in the past. And then I know that some of the CARES Act money will be um, dedicated to violence prevention. So over a two-year period, there's $36 million that they have invested in that direction. Just want to correct that. Okay, great. Um, I know you brought up ceasefire, so I'm going to go one by one here because I want to get a little more, give our audience a little more detail about Yes, you have these programs, but what does it mean for someone that actually gets in your programs? So um, we're going to start with Eddie. Um, can you tell us, I know I have uh, I did some research, you have this 12-month 12, 12 program pathway. What is that? What do uh, uh, a young person uh, from these communities that comes in to your program, what is it like? What is that pathway for them? What do they get? And also, if you could all talk about a little bit, because I'm curious what makes you, what you're doing different from ceasefire or from cease what do you so, did let me start with your, your second question first uh, okay. and kind of work my way up so uh ironically i actually worked at ceasefire for three and a half years in my early career my that's why i started my career and i i am extremely grateful for ceasefire um willingness, right, to hire people like myself. And what I mean by that, um, three months uh, prior to me being hired, I had just finished completing 14 years and three months in prison. So I was sentenced to 29 years in prison from the ages of 18, and I came home when I was 32. And uh, I started volunteering at a church, working with kids who were on probation. And from there, I got recruited into the ceasefire program uh, at a little village, and then later on, in Chicago, through the public health office. Um, shortly after that, I was featured in a documentary called The Interrupters. Selfish plug in there for the documentary. Um, but it was it was through the platform uh, or the, the platform that I created for me that I started realizing, in addition to the, the fact that I was in undergraduate school and later on going to grad school, that I learned more about different theories and approaches and best practices to this work. So even programs like Ceasefire, um, you know, when done correctly, it actually could have a huge impact in communities, uh, whether it's the outreach or the interruption work, which typically takes place right after retaliation or preventing somebody from being shot. Um, and so part of what's missing there, right, for some quite some time is that you would take someone like myself, right, who had this, you know, story of, of, of incarceration, gang involvement, and you would deploy them into this community to help reduce violence. And you would use a lot of times your own testimony or your own social capital, right, to just kind of be able to um, convince someone not to, you know, harm someone else or to provide a glimpse of hope for that matter. But often I was I was falling short. And what I mean by that is like, it's not like I had something to give them, right? They could turn around and do something different. So my philosophy has always been, if you want somebody to put their gun, you know, gun down uh, and to step away from, from their specific kind of life, they're living, then you got to give them something to step into. And that that incorporates Ready Chicago. You know, Ready Chicago is it started off as an 18-month program. Now it's a 12-month program where we 
We use uh, specific data from the crime lab, which is our research partner out of the University of Chicago's, uh, uh, University of Chicago's crime, crime lab. And we use specific data, right, uh, to help identify individuals who are the highest risk of gun involvement. Those individuals, and I won't go into all the details, are seven times more likely compared to their peers in their own group to be a victim of gun violence. Um, and so we, we meet them where they're at and we provide an opportunity through our street outreach uh, uh, partners to engage them in what we call relentless engagement and offer them an opportunity for a quick job. Meaning if they're willing, we are able to offer them a job like tomorrow. And so, um, so in many cases, out of the 1,200 plus men that I mentioned earlier, um, almost 700, almost 680 plus men already have taken up, have took, have taken up, taken us up on that offer, uh, on the jobs. But we also recognize, right, that our men, uh, as Vaughn and, and and Peter mentioned earlier, they, they are struggling with quite a bit, and part of it is a. So even when you're able to provide them a job, they're not going to sustain it because. The soft skills that we often hear on this call take for granted. They don't. They haven't fully developed yet, right? They have. They don't know how to take instructions in some cases, um, how to show up on time in some other cases, right? Uh, they're still self-medicating as well through, you know, um, uh, marijuana and other 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 um, narcotics. And so it's really important that we unpeel that, right, and provide what we call chronic behavior therapy, and we compensate them for that. Uh, we used to do it three times a week. Now we offer it five days a week. You know, um, um, you know, for about 100 hours of CBT before we actually place them in a job. Um, and these are companies that we already have been partnering with who are really um, lax in, in the way they hire people with backgrounds. And they actually have more mobility in these, in these employers' opportunities. So those are some of the things that I would say uh, of what services look like. I could tell you that uh, the last thing that I'll say is, you know, our, our retention to the services that we provide for our men are about a 57% retention, uh, particularly after six months, which is huge when you compare it to other programs like and CEO. Uh, so we feel really good given the fact that who we're serving and given the fact that they're seeing uh, their attendance. And, and particularly when you see more increases of CBT, kind of behavior therapy, you see even more of their attendance and less behavior or, or uh, risk behaviors. So that for us is a huge, huge win. Um, so a lot more that I could say, but typically that that's it's a it's an eight hour program. They are with us from nine in the morning to five o'clock, in which they receive what I just mentioned a moment ago: the CBT, the kind of behavior therapy. Uh, they receive uh, professional development through employment opportunities and other job skills as well. Okay, Peter. Uh, same question to you: How what does a person coming in and working with Cred? What do they experience? Um. Well, you know, usually the first person that they talk to is an outreach worker. And it's, you know, someone who has shared a lot of experiences in life with them. So the guy, the participant may be a 22-year-old guy. Uh, the outreach worker may be 35, maybe someone who uh, has served some time and been through the criminal justice system uh, and is now out and is now stabilized. And that might be the first person they talk to. The next person they talk to might be a therapist. Um, and, you know, so now you have a second adult in their life who's offering them, you know, every, you know, regular counsel, helping them just say things that they haven't been able to say uh, in their life, the trauma that they've uh, dealt with. Uh, you know, Eddie and Vaughn can tell you some of these kids uh, witness their first uh, act of violence when they're tiny children. And uh, they witness their first shooting when they're 10 or 11. They're 
they touch their first gun at the age of 12 and, you know, they're surrounded by violence by the time they're, you know, 14 or 15. That's that's a lot of unaddressed trauma. And no one sets them down and asks them how they feel about that. And, you know, they struggle even to talk about it. So that's a second adult in their life. A third adult um, is a job coach. Uh, once they kind of get through, you know, a certain stage of the program, they start to get some employment and training. And now they have a coach who helps them understand some of the soft skills that he was talking about, whether it's show up on time or learn how to take direction or even learn how to get, you know, get kind of uh, disciplined by a boss without, you know, exploding or, you know, just how to cope with that kind of stuff. And then uh, we also provide life coaches, which is really someone who stays close to them uh, when they experience additional traumas. Um, Some of them uh, may... uh, get themselves out of the life, but they still have a brother or a sibling or a family member or a good friend who's still caught up and something happens to him. And the next thing you know, they're having a terrible experience again and they're, they're, they're going to slip back. So that's like at least four adults in their life who care about them, who talk to them, uh, who check in on them regularly, who they can call. Uh, that's kind of uh, a lot of what the program does. Okay, Vaughn, tell us about CP4P in a little more detail and what someone experiences when they get involved. Oh, no, he's You're on mute. You're on mute. Sorry about that. No um, worries. From a structural perspective, uh, we are about sort of four pillars. So in Communities Partner for Peace, the four stands for hyperlocal, trauma-informed, um uh nonviolence and um restore restoration restorative practices so the hyper local part is such that we like to have a local partner who's you know sort of physically located in the community in or near the community that they serve so that we're building up the capacity of the local organizations to have sort of the infrastructure for creating peace in their neighborhoods So each of those organizations is armed, like I said before, with outreach workers similar to um, to Ready and Cred, where they canvass their neighborhood on a regular basis, uh, mostly um, Wednesdays through Sundays. And they're really trying to build relationships with the people who are most vulnerable to gun violence. Once they build that relationship and the, the, the participant is willing, then they get assigned a case manager. That case manager really works with them sort of in a customized way to figure out what needs does that particular participant have. So we also, as part of our uh, uh, set of services, provide free behavioral health services. So we have a a director of behavioral health services that sits on my team, and she has a team of seven uh, behavioral health uh, specialists. Um, Hopefully, we'll get to 11 at some point to, to serve our whole network. But they provide free behavioral health services, whether that's one-on-one, whether it's family, whether it's group uh, therapy. We have a, a what we call our justice corps, where we have um, a team of attorneys that provide free civil legal aid services for our participants uh, who often have challenges with the law. And, and we want to make sure that, you know, we sort of take away any of those constraints uh, with our lead justice corps. And we have a small job readiness team where we subsidize GED attainment and job readiness services. So 
if you go through our two week JRT, we'll pay you $300 for those, you know, a week for those two weeks to go through job readiness training. And then we have monthly job fairs uh, to, you know, hopefully secure employment for our participants. Now we stick with these guys, even if they're secure employment, they still have access to the outreach worker and the case manager and the behavioral health team and the uh, justice core team. Um, and so again, that's really similar to what these guys do, uh, but more, our job is really more building up the capacity for the local organizations to be able to, to stand that, uh, stand that up and to execute um, on that on a regular basis. All right. Interesting. All right. I'm going to go over, I did a couple screen grabs of some, uh, some, uh, basically data visualizations from Chicago cred site. Um, I thought they were interesting and I think they'd be, I want to hear your take on them. So if Eric, can you can put up the per capita homicide rates? Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Okay. So, I mean, there's no mistaking this. And I want your opinion from all of your work, which is on the street doing this amazing work. Why is Chicago, um, in your opinion, so much an outlier compared to New York and L.A.? And I think if you add up New York and L.A.'s numbers, they would still be less than Chicago. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you guys, and we can open up to any of you, do you have opinions on why Chicago is so much higher than those cities? They're similar sized. I can I could tell you one thing is that they've been trying to do some of this work longer than we have. Yep. Um, yeah, that was going to say. You know, um, every, everybody has their 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 kind of transformative moments. L.A.'s was uh, the Rodney King riots, but it wasn't actually until a big scandal seven or eight years later, the Rampart scandal, that yeah, Rampart. people really, you know, the, the the level of brokenness in the police department was just super apparent um chicago had a big scandal in the 1950s but then uh the more recent stuff was uh the laquan mcdonald video in 2015 is when it came out the incident happened in 2014 so that was kind of one of our water watershed moments so we're just behind them in some ways that's that's one factor i'm sure there's others i'm sure eddie and vaughn can add, add to that but i know that's one of them I, mean, I think you go back to some of the things we said earlier, just in terms of housing discrimination. Um, I think one of the things that L.A. and Chicago have in common is um, sort of street organizations uh, and the prevalence of that. Um, um, I think the history of organized crime in Chicago and New York is similar, uh, but the investment to address it, um, you know, we, we've just lagged behind on that. I think the other part that we have to look at in terms of um, New York and L.A. is how they policed. I think they incarcerated a lot of people and they gentrified. Um, I think we, you know, that those are just facts. They did make investments, but they also gentrified. So if you look at Brooklyn today, if you look at Harlem today, they don't look like they did yesteryear. And one of the things we're committed to here in Chicago is to become a safer city but by healing the people that are here and creating a home for the people that are here. And we don't want, uh, you know, our folks to be displaced uh, in the same way they were. That's a great, great, great point. Uh, that's, that's part of what I wanted to share, but you're absolutely right around that. Um, you know, often I think that, that it is a, a 
it's an unjust comparison when you look at Chicago, New York, and LA. And I know that we're often compared to them because of the size of our city. But I think a more fair comparison would be what are some of the local cities around the Midwest? You know, Minneapolis or Milwaukee, uh, you know, Cleveland, um, you know, Indianapolis, Detroit. Um, because I think we would see something very differently. I also, you know, this past year, 2020, we saw spikes in violence increase in, in the top 40 cities in our, in our country, including New York and, and L.A., um, and part of it was a result, at least according to studies, is a result of, of COVID. But there were other, other challenges around the way. Atlanta, for example, had almost 300 percentage of increase, where here in Chicago, we saw a 50 percent increase of, of shootings and homicides, right? So I think that there's a lot that we could also in studies about what's happening. And, and I would simply point out to what we just mentioned a moment ago is the larger investment that goes into these communities and, and not thinking about a one or two year strategy, but thinking about a 10 or 20 year strategy. And that's also really important. Uh, like if, if, you know, Vaughn made a really, really good point earlier, and I commend him for this, which is too often politicians, right? They, they care about their position, their role, right? Their employment. Um, and so they're not willing to always take these bold decisions right, to do the right thing. And, and that's, that's, that's difficult, right? It's difficult because if you look at our city here in Chicago for too, far too long, you know, we, we just haven't had too many of those leaders, right, to make bold decisions around this. Um, you know, the prime example that I'll, I'll give you, here we are, all three of us, expressing our gratitude to our city for their investment, right, of the 30 plus million dollars that Vaughn pointed out. And, and I'm grateful for that. But again, you know, uh, I think about why did it take this long and why only 30 million plus? You know, what's what's the city's strategy to get us to 200 million dollars? You know, uh, why is it that philanthropy has slipped the bill uh, where you think about taxpayers dollars and what they're going to? Like, it's, it's an uneven comparison, too. So I, I think about those different things in light of your question, right, because um, there are things that the cities government and people did, right, for a certain amount of years to kind of get to where they're at too. Now, the unfortunate part is there, there has been a lot of gentrification, um, that particularly with the poor neighborhoods. Uh, we see some of that here in Chicago, like in the Humble Park, the local square area, uh, Pilsen. You know, when Peter talked about uh, earlier about the early in Chicago, listen, I went to prison for homicide in 1994. When Chicago was getting homicides up to a thousand, so Pilsen today isn't the same Pilsen that it was 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Neither was Hummel Park, and neither was Logan Square. And I could go down a little bit of that too. So while well, I think that we have to think about in the context of like where do we see uh, fewer violence in the police, and what really attributed to that, and how do we get our own 10-year, 20-year plan as well? Yeah, one other factor, Tracy, that is that should be mentioned is um, the availability of guns um, mm-hmm. uh, for a couple of reasons. You know, we are surrounded by states with very uh, different gun laws, very uh, weak gun laws. In, in my opinion, some would call them uh, something different, maybe you know, freedom or whatever. But my, it's really easy to get guns, and because we're in Chicago, we're the transportation center of America. There's just a lot of pipelines of activity that come up from whether it's, uh, um, you know, just from the South, places where the gun culture is different. We 
confiscate like 10,000 guns a year in Chicago. Uh, that's, that's, that's just an astounding number of them. That's 30 a day, really, um, in this city. So I just think that we, we may have more guns than some of those other places. It might be easier to get them. And Peter, I, I'll add one thought to that, right? Like, we do have a gun issue. We have a gun issue here. But I have to ask the question, right? Like, why is it that our men, in some cases women, feel the need to pick to have a gun with them? That, that to me is the most important question that I would ask, because it's it's not it's not that they're that the majority are like hey I'm gonna go shoot somebody, but they often feel they have to carry a gun to be protected to feel safe. So that to me goes back to the comments around public safety and what really legitimizes our communities and for them to feel that they are safe. You know I live in the west side of Chicago. I live in I live in Lagrange Park. You know my kids are gonna have great schools so long as I continue to live here. Um, what they, what, what, what my wife and I have been able to provide for them thus far. Uh, that's not where I grew up at. I grew up in the you know southwest side of Chicago, a little village. At Farragut High School, that was my neighboring school. Low attendance rate. There's all the things that I can say about the school. But at the end of the day, right, it's like where you're born to really makes a big difference. Who your parents are make a big difference. And I think what we're trying to do in this line of work in our own little circle and collect is to try to find a way to balance the scale, right? To be able to give our men and women and our staff, for that matter, an opportunity, right, to really have a fighting chance, right, to, to not only survive the streets, but to also have a have a job where, where they can sustain their families themselves. You know, um, I was privy. I won't say what um, <laughs> what think tank it was here in D.C., which is where now I live. But this happened years ago when I was traveling. Um, here from Chicago, but I was in a think tank's uh, office and a researcher was telling me a story. They were giving some presentation for one of the foundations in Chicago about their work. And uh, the foundation was MacArthur. I'll just come on and say it. And the, I think the head of MacArthur was in the meeting and he seemed perturbed, even though the think tank was reporting good results. And he like interrupted the, the, the presentation. He goes, sit down and he goes, listen, can someone here any one of you are PhDs, give me the damn, give me a damn number. What is it going to take to turn this community around? Not gentrify, but turn it around with the people in it. What's it going to take? Give me a number. I'm sick of these little, little programs that we're doing and we're not actually solving any of the problems. And someone came out with something like, I think it was 300 or $350 million dollars. And that was the end of the discussion, <laughs> right? Because they were like, well, we're not going to, we're not going to invest that amount of money in any of these neighborhoods, right? Because, you know, getting Eddie's talking about all of you, like, what's the long-term strategy to turn these around? What kind of actual investment would it take? And that was the number that was given out. And the head of MacArthur at the time, this is years ago, freaked out. Right. And um, I'm curious, so, I'm curious how they got to that three hundred and fifty million dollar number. Well, I think um, I think he just wanted it know. right then and there. He had to say it. They had yeah. to give him a number right then and there. So it was just totally off the cuff. And whether I'm yeah. misremembering it, it was four hundred or two fifty, whatever. It was some number that just was so large. It was inconceivable that the they, that MacArthur and other foundations in the city could actually invest in, in yeah. any community, let alone all of them. Yeah, I, I think for me, I'm, I'm glad you brought that point up because I think that it's 
it, you know, for me, like I, I just try to live my life as uh, as freely as possible and tell the truth in any forum that I can be in. I, I just think have a conversation about reparations because this is a long road and we are in a capitalistic society and, you know, money was stolen and people were cut out of, uh, you know, wealth building mechanisms and people generated wealth for other people in this country. And that needs to be repaired and restored. And that is a number we could actually get to. Um, there's been people studying this for a long period of time. And I think we need to, we got to look, we, we absolutely have to look at that. Okay. The last question I'm going to ask the three of you is, and part of the reason I wanted to talk to you um, was you participated in a press conference uh, with Chicago Cred on January 6th, a day that will now be living infamy, but not for your, not for your press conference, but for the coup that a coup attempt that happened uh, a mile from where I'm living. And I got, I was so happy to see them, the, the insurrection of staying at the hotel next to where I live. That was a really great thing to experience. Um, but in that press conference, I believe there was a, a commitment, a goal setting of reducing homicides 20% a year over the next five years. So I guess I want to go around Robin here, around to all three of you. How, um, how do you plan? How does the city do that? That's a really um, bold goal to set. Was that last year that we did that? Did we do that? Well, we, we reaffirmed it this year, but we actually started yes. doing it. We did it last year. Oh. We, um, you know, as I mentioned, 2016 was a bad year. We shot up from about 500 homicides to um, uh, nearly 800. And uh, 17, 18, and 19, we had 13 to 15% declines every year. And we were just challenging ourselves at the beginning of 2020 to up it a little bit more. If we could get down to 20% a year, we could get under 400 homicides, which is a number we have not been under since 1965 as a city. So we set that goal last January, and in fact, the city went up 50%. So when we got together this year um, to have our press conference, uh, you know, we were asking, well, what do we do? Do we change our goal? Do we modify our goal? And fundamentally, we still want to get under 400 homicides as a first step. And then we still want to get on par with New York, L.A., which is even lower, which in, given Chicago's population would be closer to 150 or 200. I mean, we just want to stretch ourselves to keep pushing. Now, we're now starting from a much higher place. We're starting from whatever Eddie said, 769 instead of 495, which is what we had in 19. So we just don't want to back away from it and say, well, we're abandoning our goal. No, we have to keep pushing ourselves to see if we can get back down. We have to make this year 2020. We have to make 2020 an aberration, not a trend. And unfortunately, it's off to, we're off to a bad year in 2021 as well. So we have a lot of work to do. Yeah, I would say on my end, right, uh, to answer your question, you know, I, I want to start off by saying our communities, they need hope. And so whether or not the 20% reduction or 30% or 50% reduction, right, uh, it could be aspirational. The thing is that we should be working towards that. We should be working towards, like, it's zero homicide. And I know it's just a, it's a pipe dream. But, you know, for somebody, right, like when I have to visit a family, uh, one of our participants who've been killed, for that, for that person, right, like 
For at the large scale things, all they are is a stat. It's a number. But for that family at that moment, right, is there so is their loved one, is their boyfriend, is their husband, uh, is somebody's father. And so I, you know, I remind myself of that. Um, when we when we have these aspirations, like, you know, what's what's really behind it? I also find hope, and I think this is part of the solution. You have three, you know, great organizations on this call. You have CP4P in this coalition. You have CRED, who's doing some amazing work on the South Side. And then you have Ready Chicago. And so it is really important for us as, as we think about reducing violence in this community and, and to get to this number, is that we have to continue, right, to work together to find ways that we could leverage our best practice, right, of what's working, what's not working, share those lessons, learn among each other so we don't repeat the same mistakes, right? And how do we identify institutions or leaders that have integrity, that are transparent, that are willing to roll up sleeves and push forward regardless of the size of the organization or regardless of their title and position? And I think that's just a part of it at the community level. And there's the government level, like city. You know, again, the city at the end of the day, they hold the biggest purse strings, uh, purse strings here, you know, in our community. And, you know, we do need Lori Lightfoot in her office, right, to really invest in this. And they have to do their magic, right, to think about the resources that are needed uh, to really make this work actually happen. Um, when I think about what Vaughn mentioned earlier about the ability to build capacity in those um, communities, it's critical because, you know, I'm going to say that might sound a little controversial. I don't believe putting more money into a community for the sake of putting more money into a community, either because they're black or brown. You know, um, what often happens is that there's poor management. There is no real impact of those dollars. There is real no coordination, right, or coalition building to tackle either a service um, or a policy issue. And so my my hope and what what you know, my hope is that the city continues to invest in this, and the state continues to invest in this, our county, but that the partners that you see here and others that we also represent at this table, we continue to work together towards this number. Yeah, I, I like what Eddie had to say, um, because for me, it's about, uh, it's a little less about the number. Uh, one of the things you will often hear me say is that it's never going to be a straight line down. It's going to be hopefully a, a spiral down is I think the best we can hope for given the conditions that we have. But I think, you know, for me, it's about perfecting our craft in our local communities, doing the work with the utmost integrity and, and being on a constant, uh, continuous improvement mentality. Um, and that's, you know, like I'm a, a former athlete and that's, you wake up every day and you try to get better that day at what you do. And I think that's the same way that, you know, our partners, us and our partners have to go about our day. And if we do our best work on a day-to-day basis, on a sustained way, and build these relationships and sit with these uh, folks that we need to serve and help them heal through love uh, to get through that trauma and to get on a path to a dignified life, you know, that's ultimately what's going to stop the shootings and killings is more people who uh, are healed and skilled and wake up every day with a purpose uh, for their life and the, and the life of, lives of their families. Okay, gentlemen, Eddie, Peter, Vaughn, thank you so much for participating. I really appreciate it, and hopefully we'll be checking in with you uh, intermittently to see what you're doing, see what's going on new. I just think uh, we can't talk enough about what's going on and the, the street work that you all are doing. Thank you so much. Thank you.
All right. Hello, everyone. We're going to go through a couple segments. I want to once again thank uh, Peter, Eddie, and Vaughn for the um, for participating. It's fascinating discussion, finding out about their work, um, finding about how it's measured, what actually happens. They all have unique approaches, but they're working together, and that's great news. Um, I don't think there could be enough coordination of what's going on. Um, and I'm also very happy um, to hear um, that they are not satisfied, um, they're thankful for, but not satisfied for the city's commitment through this point. Um, I'm happy for the $36 million, and yeah, that's an improvement. Improving over what Rahm Emanuel or Richard Daly put in um, is not a uh, is not something to pat on your pat you on the back for. Uh, last year, I think in I think in nineteen the city collected something like nine hundred eighty five something close to that number nine hundred eighty five million into the tax increment financing uh, fund, which is an off the book slush fund more or less for the mayor. How you can't redirect some of that from building the build the you know subsidizing the big the building of big buildings downtown and. Um, and instead turning it um, into the communities. I am. I understand where Eddie's coming from about just throwing money at uh, programs. I agree with that. But I, I think I think a better income, um, pulling from Andrew Yang a little bit, universal basic income um, into the communities that um, experience the most gun violence in Chicago. Uh, experimenting experimenting with that program for three or five years to see the impact i think um i think would see great results and i would certainly welcome that study so we're going to move to a couple segments here um basically just about news coverage on crime and violence in chicago um the first one is a article by patrick smith from wbez um, and the title of the article is Chicago Creates a New Policy Banning Retaliation Against Officers Who Report Misconduct. And um, I want to read some th- couple of quotes from the article. Um, it's just, it's amazing to me that in 2021, we're creating this policy. Um, you know, Mayor, um, so anyways, I just think that's uh, ridiculous. I think that should have been the headline. CPD creates policy that should have had for a thousand years. Um, you want to look for why a department's broken. It takes them this long to create this policy. Um, so, um, Superintendent Brown uh, does say in the article, he's quoted in the article talking about how it, um, you know, they've always stood against retaliation, but now was the time to put this into a general order. Whoa. They've been sued, uh, as Patrick Smith points out in the article, a few times at least in the last couple of years over retaliation, over the last several years, certainly. Um, and it didn't dawn on anyone before him. It didn't dawn on uh, Mr. Brown in his first year, or I guess this is wrapping up his first year. Um I do want to talk to you about a quote from him in the article that I think is really fascinating and disappointing at the same point. It is the most convoluted disciplinary system I've ever seen, talking about the Chicago's disciplinary system, who was previously the police chief in Dallas, which Brown was. It just goes in so many different directions and comes back. And the timing of it, it takes too long. Stunning. It takes too long. The system... um, 
the convoluted system is due particularly to the uh, union contract and the desperate need for Chicagoans to uh, layer in layer after layer of new civilian overview, hoping that it somehow fixes a system that is completely broken. Um, so his lack of understanding why it is the way it is, 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 is telling, right? Um, he probably should have a better idea of why it is what it is, but you're not, he's not going to hear that. He's not listening external to the organization and he's certainly not going to get it internal, um, about why the system is so screwed up. It's just not something, um, he is going to hear. It would be nice if he's going to come out and say something like that, that he'd have the context around it. Um, but you know, the, the police department, the police officers themselves are going to say, well, you know, it's our union contract. And the fact that none of the agencies we ever created have ever worked and stopped us from beating people or robbing people or from rampant corruption. Um, so, of course, he's not going to um, hear that internally. Um, so that you get otherwise now you get quotes um, from him about it um, that come out this way that just show that he's just not caught up into the system. It'd be fascinating if he had uh, evidence of a better uh, operating system, um, you know, but this is just not how the system is operated. I've helped. Um, I was involved after our 2009 or during weird time we were doing our study with the Chicago Coalition of Police Accountability. We did a study on the police board back in 2009. During that time, I helped with uh, members of the coalition rewrite the ordinance that um, um, authorized the police board and, and detailed their operations. And we put in a lot more um, transparency. It hasn't worked. Um, we're probably weeks away from filing suit against the police board for a multi-count, uh, multiple count FOIA violations, basic Freedom Information Act violations. They just don't want to give up what they do. They just don't want you to see what they do. Um, and this is, you know, under Lori Lightfoot, who, by the way, was the president of the police board before becoming mayor. So, um, you know, I helped create that police board ordinance. I helped write the ordinance that created the deputy inspector general's office, deputy public safety inspector general for in the inspector general's office. And I also helped write the ordinance, which was the same one um, that created the citizen office of police accountability that uh, replicated or replaced the independent police review authority. Um, and neither of those organizations, at least in my opinion, at this point work. Um, I should say the deputy public safety inspector general, that office seems to work. They put out some great audits and reports this year. So, um, but IPRA and COPRA, neither one worked at any great level and they still remain not working. Um, I'm sure they're understaffed and under resourced, but they're still not working in my opinion. We're hoping to get the head of COPA on the show in the coming weeks and we can talk about that. Um, okay. In this next segment, um, in our last segment of the day, it is a story uh, from Manny Ramos, Ramos, I believe, from the Sun-Times. Lightfoot's executive order will help people alleging police misconduct. So what is this about? This is about the fact that um, when Anjanette Young's case became public through the leaking of video, body cam video, Anjanette Young never went to COPA and filed a complaint. What they did is file a lawsuit. Now, for some reason, 
um, that took some period of time. Um, it took a period of time for Copa to find out about it. It took a period of time for Copa to get uh, Anjanette Young or someone from her, uh, uh, one of her lawyers to sit down with them, file the complaints so that investigation was going. But during that time, Anjanette both sought access to the video and her lawyer access to the video uh, via the discovery process within the lawsuit, but also through the Illinois Freedom of Information Act. And of course, like Chicago does, lies, cheats, steals. This is what they do. They turned, they denied her FOIA request. So, which they had absolutely no basis for. Zero. Um, maybe for the first month, but that's really, and it should have been released, if not within the first 30 days, maybe sooner. Um, they denied it. And it wasn't, it didn't get made public until, um, it didn't get made public until her lawyer got it through discovery, at least this is what's alleged by the city, and they leaked it to Channel 2, Dave Savini at Channel 2, and that became public. That's how we saw it. It shouldn't take that. So now this general order by Lightfoot um, is supposed to alleviate that to some, but you got to watch the language, okay, about how this is going. And remember, when we talk about this, Mayor Lightfoot is a was a partner at Mayor Brown making a million dollars a year. That's a big law firm. She was making a million bucks a year as a partner. And so and when you question how in the world does the city with a mayor that was making a million dollars a year as a lawyer put out a policy that's vague? That's a good question. So let's I'm going to read you some of the article and we can talk about it. Under the executive order signed by Mayor Lightfoot, people who have filed complaints with the Civilian Office of Police Accountability, COPA, can obtain the information without needing to file a formal request under the Freedom of Information Act. The order allows the alleged victims to file a complaint with COPA for materials related to the incident. So they have to file, I don't know what file a complaint is. They have to file some request with COPA to get access to the materials about their own case. Then COPA will send the request within three days to the CPD and the city's law department. Okay, that seems okay. Here's the kicker. Here you go. Unless the video being requested falls under the city's video release policy, the materials will be released within 30 calendar days. Why? Why would it matter if it falls under the video release policy? What is the video release policy? So in brutality complaints, shootings, and I think brutality complaints, but I might be wrong. It might just be shootings. Um, the city instituted a policy under ROM that was 60 days. Those videos have to be released by COPA up on their website, which I think is through Vimeo, actually. Um, has to be released within 60 days. So the wording makes it seem here, if you read that, um, that if it's... If you're filing suit about something that has to do with brutality and or shootings, you're actually not going to get it to 60 days because it's mandated to be released in the 60 days. I think it's only shootings now that I think about it. Um, so even if you file a request on you get shot or hurt and then you file a request day two and you do it and it gets to the CPD and law department in day five, they're going to follow the video release policy and you're not going to get it for 55 days. That has to be on purpose, and it has to be um, 
trickery, um, massaging the language to benefit the city. There, you know, when you want to get these interviews done quicker, mandate every CPD officer with a union rep has to uh, respond to a subpoena or a, re a request for investigation from COPA within 24 hours. The union has to have someone on call to do it and be there, and they have to be and sit for that investigation. These investigations take far too long. COPA shouldn't, the CPD shouldn't need 60 days to wait for anything. They probably could do less than even 30 days. Um, it is just, um, um, it's just wrong. And what I think the city is saying is, well, we have to do a proper investigation. We don't want the video out and taining access to um, statements from people. That I can give you five or 10 days. You know what? If COPA needs more resources and they need more investigations to go door to door when um, COVID is gone, then they need to do. They need the resources they need to get that video out as soon as possible. Sixty days, thirty days. It shouldn't um, need to do that. You don't want to taint what people say. I get that. Here's the here's the funny thing, ladies and gentlemen. Under the collective bargaining, I think the officers have the ability to see the video, any video in an incident that the city has before they give their statements. Or if they give a statement before, they're able to go look at the video and make changes to the statement. Um, that is all wrong. Um, um, we have some one question I want to get to um, from Jim Collins through Facebook. Are they dragging their feet to discourage people from filing suit or for them to give up? No, I think the city's argument is they want a as clean and untainted uh, set of witnesses as possible. So by releasing the video instantly or within a day or two, you're not giving COPA time to go out and hear from people um, on their version of what happened without seeing the video. And I think there is some merit to that, but I also think that standard should stay for the officer. The officer shouldn't get any access to the video. You tell us what happened, just like the, the, the supposed victim has to, the alleged victim has to, and just like any of the witnesses, they don't get to watch the video to refresh their recollection. And you're a trained professional being paid a good money to be an officer and you're trained and you're given a gun and a license to kill, you shouldn't have to have the look at the video. So if they, if they told us, if the city came and said, you know what? Yes, we want you to have the video, but we're going to give it 10 days before you get it or have everyone sign a non-disclosure agreement in cases where you're worried about the video tainting um, rec uh, eyewitness recollections and make them sign something so they can't release it for 10 or 15 or 20 days or maybe even 30. They can't release it to the media. I think that's perfectly, there's something to be found there. But giving the cop access, the accused officer access to the video and not giving it to the public or the witnesses or the alleged victim is just wrong. But once again, you have a rather um, ridiculous, obscene, horrific police union contract that here's to protect any officers, no matter how bad the corruption is, no matter how bad or what they do, that's what's going on. All right. So thank you, everyone. I want to uh, thank you for tuning in. It was a great show. Thanks again to Peter 
Eddie and Vaughn. They were great. It was a fascinating discussion. Uh, real quick, we have Sarah Stout next week at 12 p.m. Central Time. Once again, on March 1st, we go to three times a week and we go uh, 5.30 Central with those and we'll be streaming five, uh, three days a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday uh, at 5.30 Central. Uh, thanks again, everyone. If you uh, have a story ideas, hit us on any of the social media we're streaming to now. We're happy to, um, you know, dig up some conversations for you if you um, have ideas of who you want to see on the show or questions you'd like us to address. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week, Wednesday, 12 p.m. Central, right here on the Chicago Justice Show. Thanks for tuning in.